0: Hey guys, welcome back to Vertical Momentum. Welcome back, VM Nation. This is going to be a great episode. Um, As you guys know, I'm always learning, and I love to learn from the best. And this gentleman we're going to have on is the best person that I know to talk about leadership. Because what this country needs now is a leader. We need need a shepherd and not sheeple. And that's why I, I named it that. But first, I want to thank our sponsors. Kurt Ballish of Ballish Woodworks, guys. If you need anything done for your office or for your home, Kurt Ballish makes the most amazing um, woodworking for your home. Uh, now, a big issue that I'm for when I talk to first responders, police officers, firefighters, they they lose a lot of of uh, people because when they go into a home, the house is filled with garbage. You know, a lot of hoarding issues. So Tammy Moses of The Hoarding Solution is changing the world one home at a time. So if you know anybody that's struggling in the hoard, please reach out to her. And I just want to put out, we are being sponsored by my brand new coffee that just came out. Ass kicking coffee. um, And it's 100% veteran owned, veteran made. So uh, you don't want that other kind of stuff in your cup. You want stuff by me from soldiers in your cup. So definitely check that out. Sir, I'm so grateful for you to come on today. We've been trying to get together. It's been so crazy. But here you are. Thank you so much for taking the time to teach us about leadership today.
1: Well, Richard, thank you for having me on your show. I, I know you're right. We've been going back and forth trying to make our schedules work together and finally it worked. And, and I'm happy to be here. and Glad, to, always glad to talk about leadership. Always.
0: Now you're in the sunny state of Florida right now, but where did you come from? Where did you grow up and what kind of little boy were you?
1: Yeah. So I grew up in Northern Illinois, uh, which is why I live in Florida. Uh, Cause I'm never living through winters like that ever again. So I grew up uh, about 90 miles northwest of Chicago in a small little farm town called Kirkland, Illinois, 1200 people. I think my high school had 189 people in it. Um, and uh, played baseball, basketball, football in high school. Uh, went off to uh, the United States Military Academy after I graduated. I did two years there, played baseball there. Then I uh, came home uh, after two years, ran, uh, helped my father with his business that he ran a, a, a tavern. Uh, there. Now, wait, can we,
0: can we go back real quick? Sure. Um, what made you choose one branch over the other? You know, yeah. I, I've had everybody from all branches. Um, yeah. We all have different recruiting stories. So what was your reasoning for joining the branch you did?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I get asked that quite often. So I, I applied to all the academies and I applied to all the ROTC programs, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, all of them, and, and the Coast Guard. Um, so I, I got accepted to all the academies except the Air Force. They didn't want me. Um, and then I got accepted to all the ROTC. I won a four-year scholarship to, for all the ROTC programs, except the Air Force. Kind of a theme there, right? <laughs> Obviously, they didn't want me uh, anyway. So um, so what, what really came down to me was, uh, when I thought about it all anyway, was this. What came down to leadership. And right or wrong, my philosophy, my beliefs at that point, and kind of still are, is that leadership in the navy is about ships you you know it's about people as well but really it's all about ships in the air force it's all about planes in the army and in the marines it's about people and so that fit my leadership style what i believed leadership was about people much better than the other services so in the end that's why i chose that you know it's funny because i had an uncle who was in vietnam i had two uncles both in vietnam one was in the army and one was in the navy and, uh, and I, I don't even hold that against him. And uh, I asked him one day, I said, so why'd you pick the Navy? And he said, first of all, I, I volunteered, I didn't get drafted, so I had less time I had to serve. And second of all, I picked the Navy because I knew I was going to sleep in a bed every night and I was going to eat a hot meal every day. He said, can't get that guarantee in the Army. <laughs> so, so that's why he picked that. But that's why I picked the Army over the other services.
0: But now you so you did a couple years ROTC, yes. uh, But now you're also helping out your father and the business, right? So you know because this is also going to be a business podcast. We're going to be talking about that later. So how did the discipline you learned from ROTC translate over to helping your dad with the business?
1: Yeah, so I think I think the military in general, whether you're an officer or enlisted soldier or an NCO. Uh, it teaches you those things about leadership and not just discipline because anybody can be disciplined, you know, and that's not always fun. Having somebody stand over you telling you when to do something, what to do, how to do. And I've been through that. I mean, we all have probably, Uh, but especially at the officer and senior NCO level, I think that you start learning and developing that self-discipline that is so important to be successful in life. And I tell people all the time, you got to get to, life is about decisions and consequences. Every decision you make has a consequence. Some are good, some are bad, but every decision you make has a consequence. And you gotta be self-disciplined enough and get to the point in your life where you're self-disciplined enough that you're making decisions that aren't giving you good consequences most of the time, almost all the time. And until you get to that point, life's gonna be rough for you. I can just tell you right now. So I think that that's one of the things that the military gave me was that self-discipline that then allowed me to not only be going to college as a college student doing ROTC playing ball and also helping my my father run his business when when I when he needed me to
0: so when you graduated college you went what was it like going to one of the greatest schools ever and you're, you you seemed like such an amazing guy. I'm sure you never got a demerit right?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I walked plenty of time on the area, which they don't do anymore, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, I got plenty of demers. I got p- plenty of hours that I walked off on the on the because uh, I because I w- I'm always one of I was have always been one of those guys that kind of stretches the boundaries. Um, you know, here's here's a good story, and this is an absolutely true story. When I was a plebe, a freshman, we weren't even allowed to walk on the superintendent's side of the street. So the superintendent's house, if you've never seen it at West Point, it's a two-story house, white wooden house with some brick. Um, and it has a chimney on both sides, two chimneys. So uh, my roommate and I, we were sitting there one day and we said, you know what we need to do? And it was during football season. I said, we need to come up with a banner and we need to hang it from the soup's house from chimney to chimney. And then when we pl- do the parade the next day before the football game, everybody will see the, the banner that we put up there so everybody in our company kicked in we all threw in sheets took five bed sheets we sewed them together with dental floss and painted on it go army beat brown i won that was the company we were in so we snuck out that night about two o'clock in the morning the night before and we hung we climbed up on top of the superintendent's house and we hung this from chimney to chimney. And the next day we're all parading on the parade field. And sure enough, you're sitting there looking right at the soup's house and it's got all got this sign on it. I still got the picture of, of that. And, uh, we got away with it. Um, we didn't get caught doing it, but those are the kinds of things I did at West Point. I didn't always get away with things.
0: (laughs) Now, when you graduated West Point. Well, I graduated
1: from ROTC. I didn't graduate from West Point.
0: Okay, so yeah. you did go to West Point, correct?
1: Yes, I did for two years. Yeah.
0: So uh what branch were you because when my first experience with anybody that was from um, any of the great military branches and colleges, my 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 commander was a um he he went to school in South Carolina and he went to the citadel. Yep. And officers are a whole different breed. So but I was armor what was your, what did you go into? What was your branch?
1: Yeah. So I did my first five years as an infantry officer and I was mech infantry. I was at Fort Stewart, Georgia with Bradley infantry fighting vehicles. And then, uh, and then I figured I loved it. you know, and I didn't think I would, I, I wanted to be a light infantry guy. I wanted to my, my first duty choice. I wanted to be in the 101st airborne, uh, and you know, helicopters and all those kinds of things. And, but my wife who was also in the service, she was an army nurse. She graduated from school in ROTC six months before I did, so she got the assignment first, and her assignment was Fort Stewart, Georgia. So there you go. I was going to be a Mech Infantryman, and I thought I would hate it, but I absolutely fell in love with it. And so I did my first five years as an infantry officer, and then I went to Fort Knox, Kentucky for the advanced course, and I switched over to armor, and I did my last 18 years in the Army as an, as an armored cavalry officer. And I loved okay.
0: It. Yeah, uh, I was a tank commander. That that was my last thing. And yeah, uh, great. Spent a lot of time at Fort at Fort Knox and Fort Hood, and uh, and you know, to be an armor guy, we're a little bit off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> like off. I tell my all wife all the time, you know, you're with you know four guys, and you guys become like family. That's and fantastic. it's amazing the relationship between the tank commander and their gunner the mindset that you can just look at each other and know what each other's thinking.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it it gets to that point. I mean, and and if you're a good, good crew, it should be that way. I mean, everybody in there should start thinking the same way because that's the, you got to, to make that tank work the way it should work. Um, And uh, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. You you really do bond with those people and and they do become your, your second family, no doubt about it.
0: So, you know, a lot of good people will go in. You know, they'll 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 get their first lieutenant, second lieutenant, captain, and then either you get out or you you hit major and you stay in. You know, because usually once you hit your ten year mark, you figure you're in for six, you're in for a dozen. That's so right. So, what was your thought process deciding? Okay, I'm I'm going to make it a career instead of just making a a a, a, a stop.
1: Yeah. So I, I kind of thought I wanted to make a career out of it all along. I mean, that's, that was my mindset going in, of course, you know, and I always tell people that you you never know. I mean, you, you may, there were people who graduated from ROTC in my class with me. We had 33 people who graduated uh, from Northern Illinois university ROTC when I did and got their commission. And there were people who said, I'm going to make a career out of it. Who got out after their initial tour tour. And there were people who said, I'm getting out as soon as I can, who, who retired at the same time I did. So you just never know. It all depends on, on on your experience once you're in there. But I kind of figured I wanted to to make a career out of out of uh, the Army. And, uh, you know, and it's funny because when I you're right about that captain your captain company command times about when you really need to make that decision. When most people make that decision on whether or not they're going to stay or not. And, and it's funny because that's when you become really marketable in the civilian world, because you've had that first job where you've really been in charge of a lot of people and a lot of stuff and a lot of money, you know, because my, my second company command, I was a, a headquarters and headquarters company for a separate armor brigade. And so I had 375 soldiers in my company. I was signed for $252 million worth of equipment, and I had a $10 million budget. And I was thirty-five years old. <laughs> Not a whole lot of thirty-five-year-olds get that kind of experience. So, um, was I thirty-five? I wasn't even. Um, I was thirty. I was thirty years old. Um, so I kind of had to make a decision at that point. And and you know, at that point, all this, all the Fortune 500 companies are trying to snatch up as many of the junior officers as they can, because as one of them told me, I had a headhunter come and talk to me, even though I had no interest in leaving he said look we can pay you about twice what you're making in the army because we can teach you that small piece of the pie of what it is that businesses do what they wants the rest of that pie that the army has already taught you how to lead how to manage how to manage funds money people equipment all that stuff and so that's when uh, that's why a lot of people get out at the end of their company command time captain time And uh, but I I I knew at that point I knew absolutely that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life.
0: Now for me, I've had some shitty leaders in my lifetime, and I had we all have, and I've had some great great leaders. Um, And when I became an NCO, you know, my goal was to live the NCO creed, was to be the best leader that I could be. Um, So, but I've noticed that sometimes, you know. When you get your first lieutenant, you know, you get your butter bar, you get your, you know, first lieutenant, and then you start getting up into the platoon, the platoon daddy and company commander, they kind of forget about the little guy because they have so much other stuff to worry about. And I never really noticed it until my, my 18th year, is when one year they put me in the talk and I was in charge of the talk. And I was like, "Holy shit, they have so much more to worry about than <laughs> I'm thinking about just my little platoon." Yeah, and it's when I started getting more respect for my um, my command. So, how do you walk the fine line between still caring about your guys as people and then caring about them as assets?
1: Yeah. So, I I I, I absolutely am a a believer in the army motto that it's mission first people always you, you got to accomplish the mission you got to accomplish especially in, a, in that business where you know we're defending the american way of life in the constitution of the united states and all of those kinds of things this great country of ours so you gotta you gotta be successful you gotta do what you gotta do but you have to take care of people and you know and my vo- philosophy of leadership is servant leadership i believe 100% that Leadership is about selfless service. And if you don't believe that, I think you need to go find something else to do, because it is not about you. You know, in chapter two of my book says it, it, it's titled, it's all about you. It's not about you. And, and, and it really is both of those. It's not about you in the title that you're going to get and that you're going to make more money. You're going to get better privileges. You're going to live in a nicer house. Now, some of those things happen when you're a leader. Good for you. But that's not why we made you a leader, and that absolutely should not be why you want to be a leader, because if it is, you need to go do something else because you're never going to be a good leader. The way it is all about you is how you treat your people and how you run your organization. And in my opinion, it's got to be selfless service because there can be times when you have to make a decision that is not in the best interest of you. It's not in your best interest whatsoever, but it is in the best interest of either your people who work for you or the organization that you work for. And you have to have the courage to make the decision that's the right decision, even if it's not the one that would benefit you, but it benefits your people and your organization. You have to have that courage to do that. And if you don't, you need to go do something else because you're not the kind of leader that we need in this world.
0: And, you know, I'm a big Zig Ziglar guy. I've always loved Zig. And, you know, he says, you know, that you have to care. You know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And for me, you know, being a squad leader and um, tank commander, and I always put my guys first. You know, um, like there was one Christmas where one of them wanted to go home. So I took his his, um, watch on the gates for the week. And people are, are like, you did what I'm like, because he needed to be with his family. Yeah. But then after that, I could have asked him to run through a brick wall with a 50 cow on his shoulder. And he's going to, he's going to do it.
1: And he would have done it. Absolutely. You know, and I had kind of the same before I had kids, especially, you know, I would, I would work the Christmas Eve or the Christmas day. Um, officer uh, of the day job because I didn't have kids at home. I didn't have to worry about going home and, and having my kids open presence and all those kinds of things. So I think, you know, that again, th- that's all about selfless service. You got you got to understand what your what your what your place in, in the world is. And I, I forget who it is, uh, who said it, but you know, we're not given leadership positions to see how powerful we can become. We, we we're given those positions to see how much how we can empower the people who work for us and the organizations that we run. That's why we're given that that privilege. And it really is a privilege to be a leader. Um, And if you don't look at it as a privilege, again, you're probably doing something you don't need to do. And I will argue with you, Richard, that some of the best leaders I've ever had, I've ever seen, I've ever known, I've ever worked with were senior NCOs. Um, one, One of the best leaders I can tell you was Master Sergeant David Powell. Uh, who was my senior military instructor at when I was a professor of military science at the University of South Alabama? So we were running an ROTC program, and and he he was absolutely—I'll put his leadership ability up against any three four-star general out there in the world today.
0: Now, obviously, you put in how many years? How many years?
1: Twenty-three years.
0: So obviously, you were deployed. And we're not going to you know, talk about all that stuff about, you know, I'm, I always worried about OPSEC and all that good stuff. But there's a difference between being a peacetime leader and a wartime leader. You know, peacetime. Yeah, you can send people to the motor pole to clean up and change track. But when you send people outside the wire, it's a different it's a different mindset.
1: Absolutely. So
0: talk to us about the difference between being a peacetime leader and a wartime leader, because I know that's one thing that struggled with um, President Bush. He never expected to be a wartime president and it totally changed his mindset. So please talk a little bit about the mindset between peacetime and wartime.
1: Yeah. So I think a a lot of the concept is the same um, in that I believe that peacetime, wartime, whichever, you as the leader, when possible, because like you said, you know, we got, you got a lot of things on your table, you got a lot of things going on, um, but when possible, you should be where your soldiers are, your people are. Um, and and I tried to do that as much as possible, even w- whether deployed or in, in peacetime down at the motor pool. If my soldiers were in the motor pool, my place of duty was at the, in the motor pool as much as I could do that. So I think that is kind of the same. But I think what really is the difference is that you, you got to understand the business that that you're in, in the milita- military, when you start making decisions and um, as leaders. And what I tell everybody, I tell as many people as I can that I'm recruiting for Army ROTC and before they go off to be lieutenants, you know, right before they go off to be lieutenants, I, I always like to talk to them about You have to understand the business that that you're getting into here. You can make all the right decisions and you can do everything right. And people might still die. That's just the business we're in. I mean, so just imagine what happens when you don't make all the right decisions and you don't do everything right. What happens? So I think that's the difference is in peacetime. If you make a mistake, okay, somebody goes home at eight o'clock instead of five o'clock wartime if you make a lot of mistakes or some big mistakes the person goes home but in a body bag not on the plane with you when you go home
0: so now you did over 20 years and um you know i've talked to i've had over now 380 interviews and a lot of times people don't do the whole 20 but even if they do you know like when we're in the military we just look down at our chest we know what rank we are. We know our name And then <laughs> when you step off, you know, like my friend, Sergeant Nick Valentine says, you know, when you step off base, the military does not give a shit about you. And now you don't have the camaraderie. A lot of times you don't have a mission. And a lot of times you don't have a paycheck Yeah. and you get out and you feel like you're on an Island by yourself. What was your transitioning like? I'm sure, you, but you even planned your transitioning out. But what was it like when you transitioned?
1: Yeah, so I my last duty assignment on active duty, I ran an Army ROTC program in Mobile, Alabama, at the University of South Alabama. So, um, so during my three years there, um, my wife and I, we, you know, we had decided based on a number of different things that it was time for me to to move on and do something else in life besides. The army and so i started looking around trying to figure out what i was going to do and again my mindset is about selfless service that's kind of ingrained in me so i really didn't have an interest in going out and working for a fortune 500 company and get back into the rat race and worried about you know raises and promotions and all those it just didn't interest me what whatsoever so there was a food bank there in mobile run by a retired Colonel. And he was looking to retire from that. And so he, he talked to me one day and said, look, I'd like to bring you on as the associate director and we'll kind of groom you and train you. And in a couple of years, um, in a year is what he said in a year, then I'll step down and you'll take over as the uh, director of the food bank. And so I knew nothing about a food bank, except that it had food in it. That's about the only thing I knew about a food bank, but, uh, I knew it was about selfless service and I, and I was very willing to do that. And then it went past the year mark and whatever. And so, um, he, he really decided maybe he didn't want to retire at right then. So, um, they asked me to come do recruiting for army ROTC here in the Florida area at one of the universities. And, uh, and although it was tough to come to central Florida, you know, cause, but somebody has to do it. I took one for the team and I said, yep, I'll, I'll come there. And, uh, and so I've been doing that for 11 years now. And I absolutely love it. I mean, so, so I'm kind of back into this, I'm still in the service, you know, given selfless service working for the government and government service type stuff back in the army somewhat. I'm in the army environment. I'm not in the army. They can't deploy me somewhere, but, um, but I'm still in that environment. And like you said, the esprit de corps and, and all those things that, that you have in the Army. And, uh, and so I, I was lucky in my transition that I, I kind of had a good one at the food bank. And then I, I have a good one now. And then, you know, and now I've written the book and doing, uh, doing speaking engagements. And at some point, I'll transition out of the recruiting for Army ROTC and try to do that for a, a little while.
0: Now you know I've had some great people on my show, um, General Petraeus, Lieutenant F- uh, Five Coat, Lieutenant Colonel Fivecoat. Coat. Um, what and we talk a lot about the transitioning because you know we're losing a lot of veterans to suicide. Yeah, um, struggling. We got, we got to
1: fix that. I mean that's that's that's
0: so. If you know if there's a forty five year old guy right now out there, we'll call him Craig. He's a father of three. He's getting ready to retire out of the military. Where does he go? Because there's not many job openings that are looking for tank commanders. Yeah. So what are some steps that they, I mean, I I know the the military, they're trying to um, help, but, you know, I think it's not, you know, like when we get deployed to another country, we do like a six months train up. And I think we should do it six months train down. When yeah. we're about to get out, yeah, you know because a lot of times you get a military guy who'll put a resume in and it has so many different letters and nomenclatures that the person just looks at it.
1: they don't even know what it means,
0: and they just throw it to the side, yeah, and cool. and so they get lost in the shuffle. So yeah. what would you tell that forty five year old just getting ready to get out of the military?
1: yeah, so i I mean, I think the army. Realizes military probably not just the army that that we need, need to do a better job. Um, here's the problem: we, we tell people yeah, you want to take that last year and you want to really concentrate on getting your stuff ready so that you can transition. But you know, if you're a real leader, if you're a real uh, if you if you care about what you're doing and the people who work for you and the organization you're in, you don't you can't just drop all that. During that year, and concentrate on you. So you're kind of doing a double thing there. And you know, I can just tell you, in my instance, I did not do a very good job during the transition period. I, there were things that I should have done better. I didn't do them because, in it, to me, my number one responsibility was not me retiring. It was still my organization and the people who were working for me. Right or wrong. And however you do that, that's up to you as an individual, but that was how I did it. And I can tell you, I didn't do a good job with transition. So we got we got to get to the point where we are allowing people to, that is what they're doing. Not, maybe not for the last year, but certainly for the last three months, maybe six months in the army. Once you, you have approved retirement or you approved ETS, gonna get out of the army, we got to dedicate two, three, four, five, maybe six months where that's all you are doing is getting yourself ready to move on and do something else. Because if you don't do it that way, people are are, are torn on what they need to do. And, and the people who are in this for the right reasons will always, always revert back to taking care of other people and the organization ahead of themselves.
0: Okay, now I have another question asked. Just because, you know, we could talking from, you know, one armor man to another armor man. Um, You know, while we're in those vehicles, you know, I was in for 20 years, you know, so many times hot seat in tanks, you know, going to uh, gunnery, you know, knowing that, knowing what I know now about TBI, uh, CTE, You know, our brains get rattled every time that main gun goes off and it happens thousands of times. Yeah. So what do we do? You know, because now it's just starting to come out that some of our soldiers are suffering with TBIs and uh, CTE and not even it's never it's not even talked about. Yeah. You know, I've never heard CTE being talked about on another show except for this one. So what is a person does a how does the person, you know, cause if you've been deployed multiple times, you know, you might not have a lot of issues, but you you don't come home the same person
1: you were. No, you don't.
0: So talk to us about how a person takes care of their mental health after getting out of the service.
1: Yeah. So again, I think you got, you got to understand the mindset of, of what it is that you're being asked to do. And, and, and again, you know, there were plenty of people who saw pl- plenty worse things than I ever saw, and I got it. I mean, it, it that's you know it's tough, but um, but you know the the way I always looked at it was I'm go- I'm going home. I'm coming home, and I'm going to be with my wife and my kids. So you, you do the things you got to do to live and and to move on and do that. But I think that again, I think people who stay in for a while after the deployment have a better do a better job of re uh, of coming back and and being part of the organization and civilians and, and being part of life. The ones who really have a whole lot of trouble generally, and if from what I can see, the initially are the ones who come back and immediately get out of the army. Because like you said, they, they no longer the army didn't care about them at that point. The they don't have the camaraderie, they don't have their buddies looking, you know, they're their battle buddy isn't checking on them every every day to make sure they're doing okay and helping them out with things, so they they start to fit, feel like they're alone and not not worth going on. And and we, and so I think again, like you said, we tr- we spend six months to a year training up for to deploy. We ought to have at least that much time coming back to get us back into. Family life, even if you stay in the army, family life, civilian, um, peacetime army, civilian type stuff. And then if you're getting out, certainly you need that six months to a year to to get yourself back into the mindset of what it is that you got to do. But I think, you know, like you said, none of us ever come back. I mean, once you've seen something, you can't unsee it. And once you have to do something that you that humans generally aren't designed to do, you don't want to do but you got to do them because that's part of our job, then, you know, you're always going to have, I think, you know, some people fight with it worse than others, but you're always going to have those demons that you got to deal with.
0: So now, you know, I'm you know i a big first responder guy. I love my police. I bleed blue um, and they have the thin blue line. You know, we have the thin green line that me and you may not know each other from Adam, but if we sit across from each other at a diner, we're just going to just, Spill our souls because we know we've raised our hand. Yeah, we got something in common. Yep. So now, you know, like I interviewed, he was a uh, uh, command sergeant major and he had some mental health issues. And he said, I purposely wear my uniform when I go for to see my psychologist. So the privates and the specialists know that it's okay to get help. Yeah. What are your thoughts on, you know, the, the upper echelon? You know, because it used to be known that, you know, if if, if you were seeing a shrink or a psychologist, you, you know, you were kind of they worried about you. You were kind of picked on and but it's not that way anymore. So what are your thoughts on leadership and letting the the, the enlisted people know that it's OK to get help?
1: Yeah, I think we absolutely have to break that stereotype that that uh, if you go if you need help uh, with uh, with your mental abilities or your mental status that uh, that that it's a detriment to your career. We got to fix that because th- that's what causes the problems. Um, there, a lot of the problems can be solved or at least managed or helped, um, but you got but to do that, you got to have some help. Um, no, I got it. There's some, some 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 things that come up or happen, may not be able to stay in the army or the military and do those kinds of things and still be a productive member of the team, because in the end, that's what it's all about. But for most people, I think seeing somebody, if they need to, um, can help them become, get back to being a productive member of the team and and going on with their career if that's what they want to do. But we have to break that that stigma. And I think, I think we're moving in that direction. I think it's better than it ever has been. Um, but, but there are still, I think there's still room that we need to improve on.
0: So talk to us because now we're, we're starting to widen down. Tell us about your book, why you wrote it. And like when I wrote my book, it was very cathartic. Um, even though it ripped open a lot of wounds that I had to heal. And talk to a lot of people and ask for a lot of forgiveness. Um, What was it like writing your book? And talk to us a little bit about it.
1: Yeah. So people ask me all the time. So why did you write the book? And I always tell them I wrote the book because when I was a professor of military science, I was going around talking to high school students and college students and a few business local businesses and things like that. And I would ask certainly the high school and college students. So what do you want to do in life? What do you want to be? And a lot of them would say, well, I want to be the leader. I want to lead things. And I said, Oh, that's great. We need more leaders. What does that mean? What does it take? What does it take to be a leader? And i get that deer in the headlights look. They had no idea what it meant. So I put together a presentation and I've been given that presentation since about 2006. I've probably given it thousands of times. Could probably do it in my sleep if, and probably have a few times if you ask my wife. Um, And so I've been doing it all along. And and now I'm to the point where I said, at this point in my life, my passion really is to talk to as many young men and women and people as I can about leadership. And so I knew if I wanted to reach more people, I had to do two things. I had to write a book. So I wrote the book. I've always kind of wanted to write it anyway, but that was kind of, I knew I had to do that. And then I wanted to get out on speaking engagements and go talk on the circuit and talk to as many people as I could. And, and we all know if you want to be on the speaking engagement, the circuit there, you can have a book. Because, you know, if you don't have a book, you're not an expert, right, Richard? Um, yeah. At least that's what they tell us. We all know that's not true. But but that's that's what – so I knew I had to write the book, and I knew I, I wanted to get on the speaking engagement. And I wrote it for really two groups of people. I wrote it for young men and women aspiring leaders, whether they're in high school, college, or junior leaders in a company like that captain who gets out of the army and now is a junior leader. To kind of explain to them what it means to be a leader and what's required to be a good leader, in my opinion, a servant leader. But I also wrote it for old men like us. And and I've had people like us who have been leaders for 20, 30, 40 years, who said to me, you know, Oak, I didn't learn a whole lot of new things from your book. I learned a few new techniques maybe here and there. But what I really did, what I got out of your book was I was reading it and I, and I saw something I said to myself, you know, I used to really do that well and I don't do that so well anymore. Maybe I need to get back, dedicate some time to get back to doing that. Like I used to do it. And, and I think that's all of us, you know, I always tell people, look, leadership is a destination. It is not a journey. I mean, it's a journey. It's not a destination. You don't get to the point where you are now, the leader and you can't learn anything else, nobody ever gets to that point. And if you ever think you got to that point, you need to go do something else because I promise you, you can always learn something else. Now,
0: one you know, one thing that I, I got your book and I've read it twice, by the way. Um well, thank you. <laughs> I'm a big sports geek. I've always been a sports geek. And when I interview athletes and I always ask them, I said, Who is the most who is the best leader? in your on your team it was never the quarterback it was never the running back it was some guy you'd never heard of yeah but they were the heart and soul of the team yeah and you know and i think sometimes you know the greatest leaders they say they talk quietly but carry a big stick and for me you know like my guys know that like when i was I got thrown out of the military the first time for being a drug addict. And then I got back in and I became an, I won actually one soldier of the year. But for me, I wanted to be that guy where if you're feeling down, I'm going to lift you up. Yeah. You know, um, no matter what the situation, if we got to clean weapons, you know, like one time we were out on at fort uh, at the NTC range and my guys were hungry. So I I called in an eight-digit grid, and they actually delivered pizza to our tank.
1: That's amazing.
0: You know, but but I think that's the kind of leadership we need to where your guys know, listen, if we're having a bad day, it's okay. We're going to make it. Hoffman yeah. says it's okay. Oh, well, it's going to be okay.
1: And I think part of that, Richard, is, you know, going back to if you're with your soldiers or your team, let's take it to the civilian world. If you're with your team, the people on your team that's in your organization, if you are spending time with them and getting to know them and they get to know you so they know that you care about them. And I always tell people one of the best uh, leaders I ever had when I was a captain, he was a lieutenant colonel and he actually cared. And, you you know, you read the book, uh, the guy who would always ask questions and and stop and talk to you it, that's the key to being a good leader and to helping the people on your team is they have to believe that you care about them. And if they do, then they're willing to do whatever you ask them to do. And And then you can help them if they really believe that you care about them. And then you really do care about them, then you can help them through whatever it is they're going through.
0: So now, now for the last couple of minutes, we're just going to talk about business a little bit. Um, what do you, th- what attributes have you, gotten from your military that translate well into the, the private sector?
1: Yeah. So I, first of all, I believe leadership is leadership, and it doesn't matter where you learned it. doesn't matter where you practiced it. If you can lead, you can lead. And, you know, and I proved that. I went from being a combat arms officer, killing people and blowing stuff up, to running a food bank. You don't get any further dif- difference than that. But I think the, the couple things that really helped me that I learned in the military it, it, and then it help me in my transition to the civilian world. One is decision making. Uh, I think so many civilian leaders are afraid to make decisions and don't make good decisions um, because they don't know how to, and they've never been taught how to do it. So I think decision making is one of those things that uh, that really transitioned well from in my to help me from my military to my civilian. And I think the other one that really, really helped me that transitioned well was the communication piece. You know, we are taught in the military as leaders, whether you're an officer or NCO that you got to be able to communicate in all forms, speaking, your, your, uh, nonverbal communication, your written communication, all of that needs to be, uh, very strong. And that has paid uh, dividends as I moved from the military into the civilian world.
0: I love it. Now, where do we find your book? How do we find it? How can we get in touch with you and support your journey and your mission?
1: Yeah. So um, two, two ways to get the book, you can go to Amazon. And I know there's some people who refuse to go to Amazon. Okay, I got that. Uh, but it, you can go to Amazon and you can pick up a uh, hardcover, paperback, um, ebook. And here soon, probably, I'm hoping in the next two to three weeks, we'll have an audiobook out as well. Um, and, and so you can pick it up that way. Or you can go to my website, uh, www.ltc, oak, oak, mcculloch. And on there, you can go to a link that will take you to, so you can buy the book from me if you want to, Uh, and if you buy it that way, then you get a signed copy as well. Um, And then you can also subscribe to the website. And uh, if you want me to come speak at one of your engagements, uh, you know, a conference or a training event or a seminar or whatever it is that you want me to do, then you can, uh, we we can start talking there. Cause it's got my phone number, my email, all of that is on on the website.
0: Well, um, as you know, I, I always res- respect you, especially you know. For me, I I love my my armor guys. So I'm gonna call you sir, but hopefully one day I can actually call you Oak and not you feel like I'm disrespecting you whatsoever.
1: You can call me Oak anytime you want, Richard. I,
0: I just want to say thank you for coming on. Um, it's been truly amazing. As as you guys have been reading the, the notes, Tammy Moses, she's a sponsor of the show. She's actually. Um, has the hoarding solution. She actually wrote a couple comments about, um, I she's trying to make me blush, I guess. But um, so I want to thank Tammy. I also want to thank Kurt Ballish of Ballish Woodworks. Thank you for what you do. And like I said, if anybody's looking for some ass kicking coffee. Now, when people say, well, why are you pushing your coffee? I don't make a penny off of this. The money that my proceeds go to help, veterans that are struggling with mental health issues and also homelessness issues. So my my proceeds go to Project Die Hard22. So that's that's why I'm I'm promoting the coffee because it's kick's ass, but also it's also saving lives. Yeah. So I just want to I don't want to ever let anybody think that I'm doing anything for me. You know what I mean?
1: Good job, Richard. Sir,
0: thank you so much have an amazing week. And like I said, this is going to go out in another eight weeks. It's going to go out to up to 1.4 million veterans. And it's going to be on 10 different platforms. You're going to be on TikTok and you probably don't even know it, but you're going to be all over TikTok. So I just want to say thank you, sir. And guys, definitely check out his book. I read it twice. Check out his website, Vertical Momentum. I love you guys. And just remember, vertical momentum. The only way to go is but up. Love you guys.
1: Thanks, Richard. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.